0: My name is Gordy, so I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Geez, look at you guys. Um, I want to thank the committee, Connie, and and uh, everybody for inviting us up and flying Connie and I. And what a tremendous event. And uh, you treated us like family, and we appreciate that. Um, I want to thank uh, Teresa, Scott, Kiri, and Andrew. Those guys were awesome, the previous speakers. Um, they did great. I'm a little pissed off and have a resentment about that. Um, I also want to thank the uh, interpreters over there. Uh, you guys do great service, and we appreciate it. I've been told that uh, I have a tendency to speak really fast, uh, so that there's my apology and your warning, okay? Okay. You know, I saw I am responsible in. Oh, no, I'm not. I didn't cause it. I can't control it, and I can't cure it either. Um There you go. My work here is done. Um, My my story starts uh, with my family, but uh, before I get to that, uh, the first time I was asked to speak, I called my sponsor up and said, they asked me to speak, what do I do? And he says, well, don't swear, don't drool, don't lean on the podium, give them what you got. And that's my plan. Uh, I do have a plan. That's one of the reasons I'm in (laughs) Al-Anon. We're going to talk about that, too but my story starts with my dad um because as a man growing up uh, my dad was my was my role model and my dad grew up in the depression and he came from a family that had very very little um he was the first generation american my grandfather was a gardener on the uh, states in long island and uh so my dad didn't have a lot so in his mind to be a better dad he needed to make money and to provide a better living. And he did a really good job on that, but what that meant for him was anytime he had an opportunity to take a job to make more money, we moved. And moving is the beginning of my, of my story. I went to four elementary schools, one junior high, and three high schools. And, you know, it's a, it's a lot of moving. And, and what I've found out over time is I didn't like that. Um, it, I was never comfortable with it. Um, and we always seem to move in the middle of the school year. should start a watch here. Um, and when we moved in third grade, um, you know, that was back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and pencils were like this big and you have you know, writing in them. When you walk into a classroom, if you haven't been there before, it, the eyes are all on you. Uh, so you walk in in the middle of the year and everybody's looking at you. And by the time it's the middle of the year, the pecking order has been sorted out. And, you know, we used to settle that out on the playground. So in the third grade when we moved, I uh, went out on the playground and got my butt kicked by the bullies. And uh, I went home, kind of beat up, and my dad said, what happened to you? And I told him what happened. And he got down on his hands and knees and balled my hands up in the with your thumb on the outside so you don't break it. And he says, this is your left, this is your right, this is how you use them. The fight's not over until one of you doesn't get up. And he expected me to go out and handle my business from that point on. And I did because I was way more afraid of my dad than I was with anybody in the school. And so the next time we moved, that's what I did. I went out and went out to the playground and found those kids. I went looking for them. And we settled it right there. And what that taught me was, if you have a good offense, you don't need a, you don't need a defense. And if your offense is good enough, you don't have to win the fight. If you give yourself a good enough accounting, those guys are going to leave you alone. Bullies aren't looking for guys who are going to put up a fight. They're looking for people that they can pick on and that became a hallmark, and we're going to talk about that, too. But what I was really learning to do was, was to teach people to stay away from me. And, you know, I'm really comfortable that way. Uh, it's really easy for me not have to connect with people. It's really easy for me to keep you at a distance. So as we were growing up and we were moving a lot, I grew up with the isms of the disease. My dad drank every day of his life. I never saw him drunk. But I, I, came, uh, I come from a, a non-talking family. Uh, we didn't talk about... With anybody, what was going on in the house. It, you know, if my family asked you how they felt, how you felt, they wanted to know if you had a fever. It had nothing to do with an emotional state. And that's how I grew up. Um, I was the youngest of four. Don't call me the baby, I have a resentment about that. Um, <laughs> and we became a really tight family. And, and so as, we, as I progressed in school and got into high school, and I was sick of moving by then. I was, uh, by this time, uh, I've lived all over the country. We are living in Southern California at the time, and uh, I'm in high school, and I'm doing really well in some classes. I'm in advanced placement classes, and there's classes that I was flunking, and the truth of that was, if I liked a class, I I got involved and did the work, and if I didn't, I just blew them off. And my, my parents got called into the counselors and said, look, this kid's really capable, and, uh, you know, we don't know what's going on. And what that was was, I, I think it was passive aggressive behavior. I, you know, um, I always knew my father loved me. I knew, my, and, and I knew he was taking care of me. And that, uh, in my family, we had a lot of conditional love. We never went without. We always had the food, clothes, cars, and stuff. But if you, if you were a performer, then you got the rewards. And my my brothers and sisters were good in school, and they got all the accolades and stuff. And I was just tired of moving and didn't want to be involved. And so what I was doing is is trying to find a way to get through life. Now, about the time I was turned 16, in our family, if you had a job and, you, and whatever money you made was yours, you could do whatever you want with it, that's control. And we're going to talk a lot about control. So when I was 16, I got my first job. And I went to work, and I'm in high school, and making money and spending stuff on my car, and doing those things. I got out of high school. Somehow they let me out. I don't know how. But uh, they let me out of high school. I went to junior college because my grades weren't good enough to get into a four-year school. And I started my own company. And I started a, a company where I was cleaning apartments for real estate companies. And we go in and clean, paint, and do the whole the whole apartment at one time. And I had five guys working for me. I'm paying them under the table. And we're making three times what minimum wage was at cash, no taxes. The IRS is here. This is an anonymous program. Um, Laughter So now I'm making money, and, and I've got this stuff going on, and uh, got my grades up, and I went up to San Jose State to uh, to a four-year school, and uh, started studying psychology with a minor in sociology, and uh, I'm working two jobs. I'm working at a theme park up there, and I'm a dispatcher for the state police at night, and uh, met a girl in college, big surprise, and we started getting pretty serious, and One night, I got a call from her while I'm dispatching, and she said, my dad had me up against the fence with a gun threatening to kill me. I said, what's that about? She said, well, he's an alcoholic, and this is what he does. So I rolled two units over there, and they arrested this guy and took him out. And uh, I got over there, and in my family, we take care of our own. My responsibility is to take care of whoever is in my family. And so I had done my job, and I, I went over that night to console her. And I never thought to ask her what alcoholism was. I didn't think about what an alcoholic was. All I knew is I had to keep this guy away from, to keep this guy away from my girlfriend. So I'll, uh, about a year and a half later, I graduate, and I've got this degree in psychology. And so I start to go to work as a therapist. And I had a problem with that because these people coming in to see me were screwed up. <laughs> And the truth was I was pretty ill-equipped to deal with it at the time. So I did what most budding humanitarians did. I joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> Why well, give them therapy when you can drop bombs on them? They don't talk back. Um, <laughs> and the truth of that was my dad was a, was a pilot in World War II. And uh, he had his medals up on the wall and his blood shits, And I knew that this had had a profound effect on him. And he was, we, he, we never talked about it, but I knew that in, in my mind that was part of being a man. Um, so I joined the Marine Corps, I'm what the Marine Corps, I'm what they call an aviation contract. And that means that, uh, you go in, you get your, your commission as a lieutenant, you go to the basic school, and they send you to flight school. And if you pass all the tests, they give you the chance to go out and fly airplanes. So I did really well in the basic school, got down to flight school, and they make you take three tests. There's algebra, physics, and aerodynamics. And I passed aerodynamics, and I passed physics, and I flunked algebra. Well, the truth of that was, in high school, I didn't care about algebra. And I, I didn't pay attention. I flunked it. So I had to go see the commandant of the school, and they said, Lieutenant, you can't fly if you can't pass algebra. And they sent me to what they call stupid study. And in three days, I learned algebra and because uh, it was really important for me to fly. I needed to do that. You know, the Marine Corps gave me three, three tools, um, and they were three, really three gifts, and the first gift is, is, I don't have what I need, I improvise. And if I'm in a situation I've never been in before, I adapt. And regardless of the obstacle placed in front of you, you overcome. Now, if you listen to what I'm talking about you're familiar with alcoholism, this is going to get interesting. So um, so I pass a test and they, they put me in airplanes. And the Marine Corps is a meritocracy. That means they rank you by performance, from the lowest to the highest performance. And And in flight school, If you're at the top of the list, you can choose the airplane or where you want to fly, and that's control. And so I knew I wanted to fly jets. It was important to me. So I studied really hard, and by this time, I had married my college girlfriend. Now we're down in Pensacola, Florida, and I just pour myself into my work. Um, I studied. I graduated from primary flight, top of my class. Uh, What do you want to fly? I want to fly jets. They sent me to... to, uh, uh, intermediate jet, graduated the top of my class, went into an advanced jet training, graduated the top of my class there because I needed to have the control. And they asked me what airplane I wanted to fly. And I chose this airplane consciously, but I didn't understand what it was about until I'd been in al for a while. I chose an airplane called an A4. It had one seat and one engine, and nobody could make that airplane do anything but me. I didn't have a guy sitting in the back. I didn't have a guy sitting next to me. I was in charge of that airplane. So I take my bride, my uh, my daughter was born, that uh, was uh, 1980. Um, my daughter's name is Brianna, she was born in um, Meridian, Mississippi. You're going to hear about her later. So I take my bride and my little girl, and I'm charged up, man. I'm building a dream. And uh, we go out to the west coast, uh, going into the replacement group. Uh, came out of the replacement group, I'm at a Marine Corps Air Station, El Toro. And I'm one of those hard chargers. I'm, I'm a hard-bitten Marine. I'm going straight ahead. And I got in, and I moved up really fast. I was uh, went from a section lead to a division lead. I got to plan and lead strikes. I got to do some amazing things. And I came home one day, and my first wife told me, your services are no longer required. And, I, you know, I, I was stunned. I was like, I'm a captain of Marines. I'm leading these guys. I'm throwing these amazing airplanes around in the sky. I'm doing things that people don't even dream about. And I got fired. What? And you know, I didn't bother to figure out what that was really about. But the the main event out of that divorce was, is I had my little girl was important to me. I wanted to be a better dad, just like my dad wanted to be a better dad. And I was really filled with rage at that because the legal system, with good reason, would never give custody to a single Marine Corps combat pilot. They just won't do it. So I had to sign my daughter over to my my former. And I was filled with rage about that. Um, And I don't know how familiar you are with rage, but real rage is cold, it's calculating, and it's massively destructive. I'm not worried about the guy standing up in front screaming and yelling, I'm worried about the guy sitting in the back that's really quiet, because he's doing what I was doing, I was planning. And I made a commitment to myself, I said, you know, there's going to come a time that I'm going to get a chance to get my daughter back and I'm going to wage a campaign to do that. Now, in the Marine Corps, waging a campaign is called a full frontal assault. It's the only thing they do, and they do it better than anybody I know. If the Marine Corps places a, an amphibious battalion off your coast, we're not going to sneak up on you. We're coming right across the beach and punch you in the mouth, and we're going to figure it out right there. Those were my people, and that's how I knew how to go through life. So I'd lost this while, lost my first wife, and I'm a single pilot, so what do you do? Well, huh? I like girls. I think I'll go find another one. So I started hanging out in hockey talks because I like to dance with girls and I like to hold them—they're soft in all the right places—and lo and behold, I met another girl. Can you imagine that? There's this little short girl out there, and she's got long hair. She's a good dancer, got a Southern accent. We start dancing, and you know, when you're a single pilot, there's a question you wait for, and that question is, "What do you do for a living?" So I'm dancing with her, and you know, I'm waiting because I know it's coming. And we take a break, we go over here to drink. She says, Well, well what do you do for a living? I puffed myself up. I said, I'm a Marine Corps fiber pilot. She says, At least you got a job. <laughs> yeah, I never back down from a challenge, right? That little lady's with me today. Her, her name is Connie. She's sitting right over here, and I'm going to introduce her to you later. So we're going along, and you know, you have to give me a warning because I screwed my watch up here. Too many moving parts. It's got three buttons. Um, so I fully disclosed my position to her. I said, you know, I'm a I'm a single Marine Corps pilot. I've got this daughter from another marriage, and given the opportunity, I'm going to go get her. And she, and they said, and she said, well, you know, I'm okay with that. And I talked about the contracts of life because that's what I understood it to be. I was talking about what what was going on for me. And so we decided to get married. We had the Marine Corps wedding, the sword arches and all the stuff that goes with it. And she came along with me. And probably about a year later, I separated from the Marine Corps. And um, I was going to go out and build the American dream um, because that's what I'm supposed to do. So what I did is I went and interviewed with a bunch of companies. And uh, this one company said, you know, Gordy, we think you can do what we do. That's the good news is. But the bad news is, is we're not going to pay you a salary. You can make as much money as you can. And they showed me some guys who were making some pretty good money. And the Marine Corps taught me is, if you can do it, I can do it, all right? I may not, I may not have the skills, but I'm going to improvise. I'm going to adapt and overcome. So we moved up into Washington State. I uh, start working on a new business. And I uh, start pouring myself into that. And my daughter came up from California for what was supposed to be a three-week visit. that turned into a year. And, you know, I knew I had a tactical advantage, My first wife was down in another state. My daughter was in my physical custody. So I made the right decision for me. I went into Seattle. I interviewed a bunch of lawyers and I I said, here's my situation. You know, and one guy said, you know, Gordy, I think I can get your daughter back for you and get you custody. And I told this guy, I don't care what it takes. I don't care what it costs. You get my daughter. You know, I entered into a custody battle of epic proportion. Um, and I will tell you now, looking back on it, uh, with who I am today, I'm not proud of the way that I waged that campaign, but I'm profoundly grateful for the result. Uh, by this time, uh, Connie and I bought our first house. Uh, we had my daughter. Um, we had a golden retriever. Bought a brand-new Toyota Camry, man. I'm building the dream, right? And we're in this custody battle, and about this time, things started getting kind of tense and hectic in our life, you know, and I'm thinking that this is the, this is the process of blending a family. But what it really was was the beginning of alcoholism starting to show up in my life. And we went through this custody battle, I got custody, we got custody of my daughter, and Tanya said, you know, we've got Brie, and like to have a baby of my own, and I said. Well, I'm a marine; I know how that works. And in uh, 1986, our son was born. His name is Travis, and you're going to hear about him too. So now I've got this going on. I've got uh, I've got a son. I've got a daughter, the dog, the car, the house, and, and you know, on the outside, everything looked right. and, and but we were starting to fight a lot. Um, there was a lot of tension in the house. And I, you know, again, I went back. I'm looking for the logical reason for this and to me it was we're blending the family and we're just not we're not reaching agreement on how things need to be done cuz there's my way and the highway um and Connie and I started to get into a lot of fights and, and I got to tell you um if you've been hearing me I wasn't the kind of guy you want to pick a fight with when I was uh, uh air combat tactics instructor we went to an event called Red Flag at Nellis Air Force Base and it's uh, they use the marines as aggressors and it's the most realistic training you can have airborne without actually shooting live rounds at each other. And it's, it's very involved. And you sit in a room like this and they have a big briefing and they get up and put the maps on the wall and they hand, they hold up what's called rules of engagement, ROE. It's a book about this thick. And it tells you where you can go, when you can go there, who you have to talk to and how you're going to fight. So we went back to our squadron ready room to to debrief, and my commanding officer stood up, held that book up, and threw it on the floor, and he said, we're going to win this fight. And I was home. These were people who saw the world the way I see it. The fight is not over until somebody doesn't get up, and it's going to be you. It's not going to be us. And that's the way I got into fights with Connie. I would, would, you know, I would bag up all the stuff that I've been holding inside me and the resentments, and we would unload on each other, and it was ugly. Um, about this time, uh, Connie was starting to have trouble at work. And by now, I've got a pretty good business going. And I'm a pretty good businessman. I'd applied myself and I said, hey, you know, I can help you with that. She says, no, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and, you know, again, it was, it was one of those situations where I thought I knew what the solution was and I didn't. You know, and then the weird things start to happen. You know, Connie come home and the car get parked on the lawn. Car get parked on the neighbor's lawn. You know, um, now the funny part of that was is I didn't think they were paying attention, right? Like they, they, nobody can see what's going on. And the inside of the house is really ugly. But I was really involved with my kids. I wanted to be the better dad. I was a t-ball coach. I was a softball coach. I was a football coach. I was a cub master of the pack. I was running a business, and I was a road warrior. I was on the, on the road a lot. And, you know, that things were just bad, in our house on the inside. On the outside, everything looked right. So we're, we're moving along and, and uh, uh, Connie's drinking is advancing. And and there's no hiding it. By this time, my brother had moved up from Texas. Uh, he's a doctor. You can hear about him. My mom and dad moved up. And by now, it's we're into the oh, 1995 and things are just ugly. I mean, it really is. I am, I have, I am improvising, adapting, and I am not overcoming anything. And I'm growing more frustrated. Um, I could sleep from midnight till four because that's the only time I could get my mind to shut off. I was either dealing with work or, or problems in family and things I couldn't control. And I'll tell you what control is for me. Control for me is if you guys are doing what I think you ought to be doing, I'm going to be okay. Control is all about people being who I need them to be so I'm not going to be harmed or the world's not going to be what I need it to be, to be okay. And my world was not okay. And, uh, in 19, in November of 1996, from a non-talking family, my mom called and said, Gordy, they got this thing called Allen on. watching TV. It's for friends and families of alcoholics. Maybe you should go. And in my really calm and kind demeanor, I said, Mom, I don't need to go nowhere. She needs to stop drinking. If she'll stop drinking, my life will be perfect. Those are the alanines one laughing right there. <laughs> so let me give you the update on it. My wife has over 15 years of sobriety. My life ain't perfect. Be careful what you take from me. That's you, baby. The defining event for alcoholism took place for me in February of 1997. And uh, I told you my brother's a physician, and uh, I was out in the field uh, with a customer. I had one of those Motorola flip phones. You remember those? was like, beam me up, Scotty, you know, one of those. You call somebody on it, and the battery heat your hand up. It was you know, it's a quality <laughs> instrument right there. And uh, so I get a phone call from my brother. And it's the middle of the day, and I'm with a customer, he says, Gordy, you better get down to the ER. We've got Connie down here. She's been drinking, and we don't know if she's going to live. Now, you know, I've been to a number of these events and I've been to a lot of conferences and I've been to open AA meetings and I've heard them talk about blackouts. Uh, I had an emotional blackout. Uh, I don't, it was, I was 70 miles from that hospital and I don't remember driving there. I don't have a recall. The next memory I have is walking into the ER and they had my wife on a gurney and they've got two large bore IVs in her. And uh they're trying to get me to sign papers because they are probably gonna to have to intubate her because if you drink enough alcohol you stop breathing and you die. And to that point I had never taken alcohol seriously. And I will tell you without reservation, I have never seen a body that still would live. And my world stopped. I remember standing there. I remember people walking around me, trying to get me to sign papers. And all I could do was look at my wife and wonder if she's going to live. And there were things going on in that hospital that weren't part of my life with my wife for a long time. They were treating her with care and tenderness. And that hadn't been a part of my life for a long time. Because you know what? I thought I knew about drinking. And I didn't understand what alcoholism was. It was pretty clear to me, if you don't drink, you don't get drunk. And I consider her inability to stop a character defect. It was weakness. And I didn't know what that was. So they got Connie stabilized, and I had to call my mom and dad and say, you got to pick the kids up. Connie's down here. I don't know if she's going to live. And uh, they got her stabilized, and they got her up into a room. And I had to go home that night and tell my mom and dad and my kids that uh, their daughter-in-law, my kid's mom, had almost drunk herself to death that night and alcoholism became vividly real for me but you know I had a plan I did um, Connie had been talking about going to treatment and, uh, and here's my plan I went up into that hospital room the next day and I sat down next to her and I said here's the deal you can go to treatment or I'm going to put you on an airplane anywhere you want to go and I'm going to put a bunch of money in your hand I don't want to see you again and, you know, that was my last attempt that I can remember to, to actively control the disease. And she said, I'll go to treatment. So we got her stable, and we, I drove her up to treatment that afternoon. And that night I was driving home. And, you know, for the first time in my life, um, not my life, but in a very long time, it was quiet. And I remember how vividly quiet it was. And, and uh, when I do newcomers meetings and I talk about the disease of alcoholism, You know, I talk about it, some people call it a tornado, I call it a hurricane. And, you know, you don't just step into this. This disease, my experience, is it builds over time. It starts slowly, and it picks up momentum, and it just continues to grow and grow and grow. But if you're trained like I am, you improvise. You adapt. I had had adapted to living in a hurricane. And I, I had done everything I could think of to control it. And I can tell you right now, unequivocally, I have never been able to control alcoholism. And I didn't realize that yet, but that was the truth of it. So I get home, the kids are in bed, and this is my golden retriever part. Um, I, we had the golden retriever I was talking about, and, and my office is in my house. Our golden retrievers, our dogs are like people to us, and uh, my dog used to go to the office with me all the time, and, and uh, they're just tremendous gifts to us. But. And my dogs talked to me, and I went into the kitchen that night, and I was going to make some soup because I hadn't eaten in a couple days. And if you're in Al-Anon, you know what that's about, right? I'm going to make sure everything else is taken care of before I do anything for myself. So I start making soup, and my golden retriever looks at me, and she raises her eyebrows and says, you're nuts. (laughs) And, you know, here's the funny part. That was a moment of clarity for me. And I'll tell you what I mean by that, because I knew what that dog was talking about. If you haven't noticed, I'm a type A analytical linear thinker, right? Everything in my life becomes a box. And I take one box out and I deal with it and I put it back in my head. And my relationship with my wife had become so painful that I would not take that box out. I did not know what to do with it. It was, I didn't know what to do with the emotions about it. I couldn't get, it it just was not working for me and I hadn't touched that box. But all of these boxes fell out of my head and they're, and they're laying around my feet. And I had realized that everything that I was showing the world was built on sand. It was all an image because the outside of my life looked bright and the inside of my life was dying. So I am the classic Al Anon. I go to the family, uh, the treatment center and go to the family program and walk in. Yeah, I'm Gordy. I'm here to help. And they say, can, I said, what can I do? They said, go to an Al-Anon meeting. I said, okay, whatever. What can I do to help? And they said, you need to go to Al-Anon. And they handed me a schedule. And on Tuesday, March 11, 1997, I went to my first Al-Anon meeting. Thank you. So, so I, I pull up to this meeting, and it's in front. it's in a church. That's a problem for me. And I open the door, and I start walking down the hall, and people are laughing. Now I'm dealing with some pretty serious stuff. You people need to focus. <laughs> and I walk into that meeting and they're hugging. You try to hug me, I'll knock you out, especially the guys. <laughs> I walk in and sit down, and yeah, I'm Gordy. I'm from the treatment center here. Well, you know, I've in treatment, and they go around the room. Oh, we're gonna have a first step. And, you know, everybody shares, and they get around to me, and I give them the plan. (laughs) Right? Hey, she's in treatment. She's going to get out. She's going to be sober. We're going to go on. Life's going to be great. And there's this guy in there, and he's sitting there, and he comes around to his turn. He says, you know, Gordy, just because your wife goes to treatment doesn't mean she's going to get sober. I'm looking at him and thinking, you and I are going to have a problem. (laughs) You do not know the plan. Well, here's the truth about guys and me at that point. When I walked into a room, I would sort every guy out in the room from who I thought well, the guy would have the most trouble with to the one I'd have the least trouble with and determine how I was going to deal with it without ever having talked to you. <laughs> so I go back to the treatment center and, and uh, you know, I know how to give orders. I know how to take orders. I know how to give direction, take it. I've been to an Al-Anon meeting. This counselor looks me in the eye and she says, get a sponsor. I said, what's that? And she says, well, shirts with shirts, skirts with skirts. This is somebody you're going to work with between between the meetings of the program. Don't come back without one. Okay. So the next Tuesday I go back to this meeting, walk in, sit down. There's one guy, and it's him. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, God. So after the meeting, right? I'm not a taken order. I walk up to this guy and said, "Hey, they tell me I need a sponsor. Will you sponsor me?" And he said, "Sure, I'll hand." He, yeah, he said, "Sure, I'll sponsor you." And my name's Jerry, and he hands me his card. And this guy's an Alaska Airlines pilot. Oh, spiritual stuff! <laughs> Let me introduce you to Gordy that was there that night, okay? I look at this guy's card, and I look at him, and I'm thinking, there's only two kinds of airplanes, fighters and targets. This is going to be easy. (laughs) I got you, bud. So he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to call me every day. I want you to go to three Al-Anon meetings minimum a week. I want you to read the literature, and I want you to pray. Three out of four is not bad, right? I'm not praying. You hit 750 in baseball you're in the hall of fame man they'll make a stash out of bronze that'll be enough for this chicken outfit i can do that so i start working with this guy kind of gets out of treatment and three days later she relapses i don't know if you've ever fallen off a pink cloud but it's a long way to the ground that was not in the plan So I'm starting to meet with my sponsor, and we do what we call knee-to-knees. And uh, we get together once a week, and I'm sitting with him, and we're going knee-to-knee, and uh, he, he starts giving me some of that sponsor wisdom. He says, you know, Gordy, you need to give your wife the dignity to be who she's going to be. Here's my problem. I didn't like who she was. I did not know how to separate. I didn't understand detachment. I did not know how to separate the disease of alcoholism from the woman that I married. It was one and the same, and I did not like it. But I, you know what? I was willing to take direction and keep doing the work. Next time I'm sitting with him, we're knee to knee, and I'm whining to him. And, and he says, you know, Gordy, Connie's got a higher power, and you're not it. I was pretty sure my hat said God. I was in charge of everything that was going on. I mean, and seriously, it was like, you know, if when I got to Al-Anon, if you were on my street, And you didn't think what we were doing. And my street at that time went from horizon to horizon. We were going to have a conversation. And, uh, if you haven't noticed, I can be pretty direct, right? And, uh, this is the improved version. So take what you like. And, (laughs) you know, and, and I had to, I had to do, start learning what detachment was, right? And, uh, it was, it was really hard work. So, um, in our, in our area, when we're in meetings, our meetings are fairly large. Um, And in the larger meetings they break up, there'll be a step and there'll be a topic. And I used to go to the topic meetings and and go in there and emotionally puke on your people till I could start processing what was going on. And, And, you know, I was aware enough, after a couple months looking at this, all of us crazy guys were in the topic meeting and our calm guys were in the step meeting. It's like, okay, I got this one. So I started going to the step meetings and, and I asked my sponsor, I said, you know, when are we going to start doing the step work? And he says, now you're ready. Now, uh, my first sponsor, um, came out of, uh, uh, Boise, Idaho is where he started in Al Anon. And he went, he was, he was in it when it was just Al. And it was a long time ago and there were, there were like three guys in Al Anon and all of those guys were sponsored by dual members who used the Big Book. So my first sponsor started sponsoring out of the Big Book. I sponsor out of past Recovery today. But, so we started in the big book and had me do all the reading. And then, did your sponsor ever tell you this? I want you to write. Oh, Jesus. So I had to write at the top of the page, you know, the first powerless powerless over alcohol. And my wife is unmanageable, right? Because <laughs> that was my problem. If she was manageable, I wouldn't be here and he says no you're not going to do that and so we start we start going through the steps and we're talking about what's going on and and we start I do my second step with him and he introduced the concept of a power greater than myself and i can tell you if you haven't noticed i had disassociated myself from religion a long time ago and uh, had made peace with not being involved in that my god was the god that was break glass pull handle the emergency god right you know, when, when you fly a fighter and you're surrounded by fuel and high explosive ordnance and that engine firelight comes on, you are talking to God right there. <laughs> we are personal friends right then. And that's what my higher power was. If I had to hit my knees, I would start, probably start talking to God. And he introduced this concept of, of a higher power. And for a long time, that was my sponsor and the people in the meetings because that's, that's all I could manage at the time. And we get to the third step and we write it and then, and the way he did it was, is we got down, we actually read the third step out of the big book and then we got on our knees and, and used the word co-alcoholic and then we read the, we read the uh, third step prayer. And when he said we're gonna get on our knees, it's like, I don't think so. And, and he said no, we're gonna do this one on our knees, Gordy. And you know, that was the first man that I ever had an intimate relationship with, real intimacy. And you know, I had learned to trust him and i and i wanted what he had cuz this guy was calm and quiet and i and he you know he never punished me he never jerked me up by my collar and said we're going to have a problem he gave me direction and correction and i'm profoundly grateful for that man so i did what he asked i got down on my knees and we did the, we did the third step and he starts me on the fourth and I, the first one i did was the sheets that uh, that uh, aa uses and i filled those out i don't know if you've had this experience but uh, I started putting him off. I did not want to tell him who I was. And he kept asking me done, oh, not yet. And I get a phone call from him one day and he says, what are you doing this weekend? I'm not doing anything. He says, good. Pack your bag. We're going to our sponsorship retreat in Montana. Bring your fourth step. So I pack this up. I get on this airplane. We fly out into Montana. We get there. In the afternoon, this Suburban pulls up with all these guys laughing and smacking each other and having a good times. like, don't touch me, man. I'll hurt you. And we drive out into the Beartooth Mountain. It's a two-hour drive. You wind up on a gravel road. We get there at sunset. And this is a dual-program sponsorship thing. And it, their tradition is at sunset, they gather up, they hold hands in a circle, and they do the seven-step prayer. And I'm looking at these guys like, I am in a cult I got nowhere to go, man. I don't know how to get back to the airport. And the first, uh, the first meeting that they have is a, it's a fifth step meeting, believe it or not, and it's a call up meeting. And I, my name gets called up, and I get up there, and I'm telling them the truth. It's like, hey, haven't done my fifth step yet. Fifth step yet? Don't know what else is going on. My sponsor's sitting right there. Now, what I didn't know is they had a plan. <laughs> They round up their sponsees with their four-step and circle them up in the middle of nowhere, and we're going to do your fifth step tonight. <laughs> and that's what I did. I did my first step under the stars and my first fifth step under the stars in Montana, and it was a profound experience because I was scared to death to tell this guy who I thought I was, you know. And I was expecting to get jerked up by my collar and told how bad I was screwing up and what a, what a dirtbag I was. And you know what? That de- that never happened. And at the end of my fifth step, my sponsor said, these are the things that you need to work on. This is who you've been. And he asked me a question nobody had ever asked me before. He says, Gordy, who do you want to be from this point forward? What kind of man do you want to be? Nobody ever asked me that question. I figured out that I'm supposed to be who you think I should be. I learned from my father what a man was supposed to look like. I knew what a guy was supposed to do in, in school. I knew what the Marine Corps wanted me to be. I knew what my company wanted me to be. Nobody ever said, what do you want to be? And you know, it changed my life. It really did. Uh, we did six and seven, um, uh, going in there, got in the eight-step list. And uh, by now, Connie's got her feet in the program. Our kids are in Alateen. Um, and and the family's starting to come back together. And, and we're making real progress. You know, we're, we're a sports family. Um, football and baseball are really good to us, and my son is an alatine at this point. And, uh, we're watching the Mariners, you know, and this is in the late '90s, and they're like they are now—they're terrible. I mean, they, just, they are, and and they had a, a relief pitcher called Bobby Ayala. We called him the Gas Can because every time he went out there, guys would just knock the ball out of the park. It was like pouring gas on a fire. So the Mariners have a lead, and they call in Bobby Ayala. This guy comes in to be a reliever. And, you know, my house is 25 miles away from the kingdom, and it's an enclosed building. It's made out of concrete, and I am giving Lou Pinello, the manager of the Mariners, my opinion of his decision to bring this guy into the game. And I'm yelling at the TV, and my son's going to bed, and he sticks his head out of this door and says, didn't cause it, can't control it. Damn. You know, what do you say? Go to bed, right? <laughs> so, you know, recovery showing up in our lives. And, you know, I got into nine and started making direct amends and doing the tenth step But I'm going to fast forward a little bit here. Um, about five years into the program, um, Connie's got a solid program. I've got a solid program. I'm sponsoring. I've got sponsees. They've got sponsees. But here's the truth of it. I had grown enough in that relationship to know that there was not enough in my marriage to keep me in it. And and I was talking to one of my sponsees, and this guy's using the most incredible language about about relationships I'd ever heard. And and I asked him, I said, Where are you getting this? And he says, Well, I've got this therapist that's been in both programs for 28 years. And I said, Give me that number. And there's two reasons I tell you that. One is it's part of my story, and it's it's this is not a recommendation, it's my story. And the other is, you know. If you're a sponsee and you think you're bothering your sponsor, you're wrong. Every one of my guys talks to me about stuff I need to be working on. Every one of them. And I'm profoundly grateful for the guys that are in my life. So I go to this therapist and sit down and she says, you know, you're telling me about this problem, Gordon, there's only one person here. I, I can't do anything if you're not here, both here. So I convinced Connie that I was serious about this. We needed to get this work done. And we went to this therapist together. And I want you to think of the toughest book-thumping Nazi sponsor on steroids you've ever seen. This woman knew both programs and would throw the flag. But, you know, I had been in the program long enough, and Connie had been in the program long enough to realize that this work is all inside stuff, and it's about me, and if I want the relationship together, then I need to understand your side of it, too. And we did some heavy-duty lifting in there, and I am profoundly grateful for that. Because the work we did, what that we did, allowed us to build a relationship that I'm going to talk to you about in a few more minutes. But one of the things that this therapist came up with when she, we were talking about it, we'd have one-on-one sessions, is you know I had never done a direct ninth with my kids, the tough marine. I had never talked to my kids directly. I made a lot of living amends. I made a lot of changes in my life, and she said, "You will make direct amends to your kids." You know, and I went and I sat down with my kids and I made direct amends to them. And I gotta tell you, if you've been listening to the type of man that I've been that they grew up with, my kids are stronger and tougher than anybody you've ever seen, because they told me how they saw me. They said, You know, Dad, my like both my kids, straight A students, my daughter was a cross country star, my son was my son's smaller than I am, he played football for eleven years, started on every team that he was on. And they both told me, they said, You know, if we don't get straight A's if we're not good athletes, we don't get the extra love. And when you get mad, you're dangerous. They saw my dad. I could not breathe. I couldn't work. Connie, my kids were actually scared. And Connie told them, you got to leave dad alone. He's going to figure this out. It took me three days to come out of that. And I went back to this therapist and laid this out. And she says, you know, Gordy, your problem is really very simple. You've done all the work in the program. You just don't know. You don't have the template for living a loving life. And she said, here's the most important thing I can give you. Love is never a feeling. It is always an action. If, you're, if the people in your life, if you have to tell them that, they, that you love them, you don't love them well. They should know that you love them by the way you treat them. And you know what that has become a hallmark in my life. It has changed my life, and I started to do the work that I needed to do and you know, my daughter was sixteen when she got into the, when, when we got into the program. Know, she's 33 now, and my son was 10, and my son had a lot more exposure to the recovery than my daughter did, and we'll talk about that too. But you know, I started with the guidance of a sponsor that that, that was teaching me to be the kind of man that I wanted to be, not who I thought you needed me to be and the guidance about learning how to love people well. My life started to get a lot better. Connie and I put our relationship back together. Um, now we don't have time here. I moved into, uh, and so I, now now there's some real progress going on. But, you know, I, I really looked at my program, talk about the 11th step real quick. I, there was a flaw in my program. My My spiritual program was not as deep as it needed to be. My wife has a deep and abiding faith, and it's not mine. And that had been a problem for us because we couldn't we couldn't reach agreement and we didn't know how to settle that. And my wife has given me tremendous room in my life, and I'll tell you about that too. But I had to go to the people. There are some spiritual giants in this program. And my sponsor told me what I tell my guys. You go to somebody who has what you want and you ask them how they do it. And I knew these people were spiritual. And I went and I talked to them. I said, how do you do what you do? And to a person, they told me I find time to read, I find time to meditate, and I find time to pray. And so I built a practice. Every morning I read, I meditate, and I pray. And I journal. Uh, Yes. I'll tell you what, you look at the things you don't want to do, it's probably something you should be. Um, So I started to build this program, and and things were going well, and I'll move into what my life is like today. Um, I have a very graceful life today. Um, Part of the damage that was in our life that didn't become apparent to me was that the when my daughter was growing up, she was bouncing between houses, and, and her mother is an adult child of an alcoholic, and she was bouncing from that house to ours. And, you know, she didn't have a lot of control in her life either. And uh, she had developed an, an eating disorder, and I wasn't aware of what that was. And as we got more and more recovery, it became clear to me that there was a problem in my daughter's life. And we went and found help for her. And i got to tell you, the help that I was told to, to give my daughter wanted to make my head explode because it felt like I was being a bad dad. But, you know, I know how to take direction, give direction, and we followed that direction. And, you know, to the best of her ability, my daughter has walked out of her disorder. And I will tell you this, too. Um, my daughter is me, and is, she is a type A driver, and, and there is so much in her life that I would love to short-circuit for, and I can't do it. It is not my job. But she walked out of her disorder. And, you know, my son, when when, uh, when he was growing up, had become very withdrawn, and he had done those things he thought he needed to do to find to, to get the attention in the house. But one of the greatest gifts I ever got from him is he wrote me a letter one Father's Day. And the letter said, you know, Dad, uh, when I was growing up, there was a lot about you I liked, and there was a lot I didn't. But you, you learned to find help, and the changes you've, you've made has brought our family together, and I want to be like you. I cannot tell you what that means to me because, you know, the way that I had learned to live life and the way that I had walked through my family was just as damaging as the disease itself. But I did not have the alcohol component. And, you know, the program has brought our family back together. I was talking about Connie. You know, we went and did this tremendous work, and we put our life together. And I'm I'm involved in the program, if you can't tell. And, you know, I talk to my sponsors every day, and I do a knee with my Skype with one of my guys. Because it's a long distance thing. And Connie gives me room to do that. If the phone rings and I'm on a sponsor, with a sponsor, she walks out of the room. And you know, the other part of that is I know if I'm going to be a good husband, I need to make room for her in my life. I need to make time for her. So in our family, Thursday night's date night. If you call after six o'clock, you're not going to get an answer. If you've got the gun in your mouth, call somebody else or call me tomorrow morning after seven thirty because my meditation is from six thirty to seven thirty. Try not to pull the trigger. Uh, <laughs> You know, I owe that to her, and I owe owe her a lot more. Um, I have given her plenty of reasons to leave me, and she hasn't. Where are you? And I love you for that. This is Connie. Stand up. You know, I I have a graceful life today. I had a I had a member, uh, come up to me after a meeting last Sunday. Um, my home group is Auburn Sunday night. If you're up, uh, ever up in Seattle, give us a call. We'll come in, uh, we'll come and take you to my, meet- our meetings. We have some great meetings. And there's a lady in the meeting that I've been watching. Uh, she's been doing tremendous work and she came up after a share and was telling me about it. And she said, you know, you're always so calm and put together. And <laughs> I started to laugh. And I said, well, you know, it just looks like that. And she says, well, well, how do you do this? I said, it's a function of time. It really is. Um, I've learned what was important and what, what isn't important in my life. And, you know, the truth is I'm kind of like, like a duck or a swan on the water. You know, they're really graceful. But if you look underneath the water, their feet are going like crazy. And, and um, that's the good news about it. You know, when I got to the program, um, I, I'm in commercial construction. I sold it for 27 years, and I manage it now. And when I was in sales, my living depended on winning bids. And I had a a construction manager and program manager, and she's on the phone one day, and she's talking to this contractor, and she said, you know, if you don't have your bid here by 5 o'clock, you blank, 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 I'm going to let Gordy out of his cage. (laughs) And I'll tell you, um, a few years ago, uh, a speaker coordinator asked me to speak, and when he heard me speak, he couldn't believe my story. He said, you know, Gordy, I always thought you were a banker. You know, you're quiet and calm. And I can't tell you how profoundly proud of that I am. I used to be the kind of guy that, that was the guy that got let out of the cage. I was, if there was a problem in my life, I would run a full frontal assault and beat it into the ground and, and do what I needed to. You know, and these days that wide street has become a narrow path and my path is covered with trees and it's quiet most of the time. Um, Connie and I moved out of a house we had for uh, 19 years. I'm trying to get small and I'm trying to set myself up for retirement and um we're out we had a there was a time frame involved and we're trying to we're trying to find a house and we were going to to put an offer in on another house and I I looked online one more time because I was looking for guidance and there was a house I wanted to look at and we went to look at it and that house wasn't available but the house they had under construction was and it was the house we were looking for. I was prepared to make an offer that day on another house. So we were driving back and we were talking about this house now, when I moved into the house we just sold, it was my 42nd move. And when we were looking at this house, we're going through it, and, and it was just, it, it felt really good. It felt right for the first time. And Connie looked at me and she says, did you see the lot number? I said, no. She says, it's, it's lot 43. <laughs> yeah, I have a higher power. I do. Um, and if I'm willing to listen, I, I, get that, I get that kind of stuff from him. Um, You know, and I got, you know, my daughter got married. It's the wrong guy. (laughs) You know, she's supposed to marry a Nobel Peace Prize winning brain surgeon. That's what's good enough for my little girl, right? But I got to tell you something. This guy is amazing. And he loves her the way she is and doesn't try to change her and does what he can. And, you know, he is part of our family, and I am profoundly grateful for that. My son is in a relationship. Here's a good one, okay? My son goes to school, gets his degree in chemistry, goes down to University of Oregon, gets his master's degree in organometallic chemistry. That's a mouthful, right? So what's he going to do? Going to go to Thailand and teach English. He didn't ask me.
1: I blew both pupils,
0: but I didn't say anything. There's some program for you, right? You know, I have a great relationship with both of my kids, but if you put them together, it's gas and matches, and it breaks my heart. It, it does. Um, but there's some really good stuff going on. My son is in a relationship with a young lady who comes from a large Italian family, and he has seen what a large, loving family looks like. And, you know, he goes up there, and he spends a tremendous amount of time and, and this is what the program has taught me. That's not about me. That's about him seeing something that he wants in his life. And here's where the program comes for me. Do I miss him? You bet I do. I love my son. I cherish every minute with him. But, you know, there's an opportunity there for him to see what a different family looks like that has an integrated family that works well. And although I miss time with him, I pray his family breaks the pattern and is that family where they have that kind of communication together. And I'm willing to surrender my time for his betterment. Other centeredness. I love my son and I want what's best for him. Does it hurt me? Yeah, it does. But I want him to do that and I would never stand in his way. I want to wind up pretty quick here because I've been rattling at you for a bit. Here's the hallmark of my program. Um, there's a writing, there's a lot of writings in the Al Anon readers and at the bottom of the pages there's some really powerful spiritual stuff and that's where I really started my spiritual, my spiritual, uh, search. But there's a saying in there that uh, that describes my path. And it says, it's by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And it says, there's guidance for each of us. And by lowly listening, you shall hear the right word. Certainly, there's a right for you that needs no choice on your part. Place yourself in the middle of, pow- of the stream of power and wisdom which flows into your life. And then without effort, you're impelled to truth and perfect contentment. You know, when I got here, al on in my meetings were, we're that, that stream of power and wisdom. And I've gone outside and I've found it, but my foundation was built here. And I'm profoundly grateful for for Alcoholics Anonymous and and for Lois and all of the work that you have given us that I could find this path and become the man that I am today because I'm proud of that. And that stream of power and wisdom leads me to places like this where there is a tidal wave of recovery here. And if you're new, soak it in. And I'll tell you something else. If you're new, find a piece of literature and put this date on it because it's going to be important to you someday. The day that you stepped into the stream of power and wisdom in your life. And you know, my life isn't perfect. There are, there are days that, that go well and days that don't. And when days don't go well, I do what my sponsor told me to do. He says, you know, Gordon, if your day's not going right, he says, you go to readings, you go to meetings, read your literature, you call your sponsor and pray. If that doesn't work, you go to meetings, you read your literature, you call your sponsor and pray. If that doesn't work, you go to meetings and, and then that's the truth. And you know, the majority of my days, I am in the stream of power and wisdom. But when I hit the bank, I know how to get back in because you guys have given me the foundation and I've done the drill so I can get back in. My hope for you this weekend is that you find your own stream of power and wisdom. And When you hit the bank, you find a way to get back in. It's an honor and a privilege. Thank you.